This, these songs take us back about 3,000 years, and we don't have the melodies for them anymore, but we still have the lyrics. And this book of Psalms, this co- collection of ancient songs, is intriguing to me. First of all, because I believe that these aren't just inspiring lyrics, but I believe that these are the inspired word of God. God gave authors the words for these songs. And so for me, that's intriguing. But maybe, maybe you're not at that level yet. Maybe you're kind of newer to North Cross. You're kind of searching out what the Bible means for you. Here's the other thing that's intriguing for me when it comes to these songs that are in the Bible. As you read through these songs, you see pretty quickly, there are a lot of emotions conveyed to God in God's presence. In fact, I'll put it this way. The Psalms invite you to bring unfiltered, raw emotion into the presence of God. To the point where you open up some Psalms and you're reading through it and you're like, boy, that that psalm writer was really angry on that day. I wonder what happened to them. And sometimes just this raw anger just gets poured out in front of God. Sometimes it's this intense sorrow or turmoil that gets poured out to God. Sometimes it's just celebration and happiness. But if you've felt it, the psalms speak to it. There's a variety of different emotions, these raw, unfiltered emotions that are brought into the presence of God. And here's the point. When that happens, it's not so that God can judge you and say, why are you feeling that way? It's so that God can hear you and, if needed, redirect you with truth in that moment and in that emotion. So, if, if, you, if you haven't read the Psalms, I highly encourage it. Start reading through the Psalms. It's, it's incredible to see the freedom we have in bringing these things to God so God can hear us and he wants to hear us. But as you read through the Psalms, one of the things that I see come up quite often is this word, anguish. In fact, this is going to be the word at the heart of Psalm 34 as we look at it today. Now, when we use this word anguish, we use it in all sorts of different circumstances in a lot of different ways. If you're holding the birthday cake and you drop it on the floor, you are in anguish. If your sports team doesn't make it to the Super Bowl, but they were so close and they should have made it and it would have been a home thing and all this other stuff, you are in anguish. If someone you love dies, you are in anguish. We use that word anguish for all sorts of different things in life, and there's really a wide variety in them. But what I found interesting is that when you look back 3,000 years to the way they viewed anguish back then, they understood it better than we do. I tried to boil it down into one word. This, this word for, for anguish really has to do with helplessness. And it all boils down to this one Hebrew word, anav. This is the, the word for anguish that we're going to see come up in Psalm 34 in just a minute. Now, you might giggle at this. You know how, have you ever watched Wheel of Fortune? This will have a connection, don't worry. Vanna White is always smiling. She's never in anguish, is she? Vanna, she's just all bubbly and you know, happy. And the opposite of Vanna is Anav. That's how I memorized Hebrew words in college, okay? You had to find some connection. Anav is this anguish that someone might have. And the, the best way I can boil it down in English is that word helplessness. Sometimes, quite often, that Hebrew word, it's not just an emotion you feel, but it's actually a group of people that you're a part of. If you're in anguish, it, means, it could mean that you're a, a person who is financially poor, so poor that you have complete dependency on other people to help you. You are in anguish. You're helpless. 
It also refers to groups of people who are physically weak to the point where they depend on others for their welfare. That person is in anguish. They are helpless. They're powerless. And ultimately, that's what gets us to the heart of anguish to this day. Anguish is really that fear of not having any power or control. I wish I could just call the five-second rule and lift that that cake from the floor, but I'm in anguish. I'm powerless. That's gross. You can't eat that cake. You're powerless when your team loses. You can't go replay the game. You're powerless when someone dies. You can't bring them back. It's this anguish that really is, is based on helplessness that Psalm 34 invites us to bring to God. See, when you're in anguish, A lot of times we might just try to hide it or accommodate it. But in Psalm 34, God invites you to lay it before him, not so that he can judge you for it, but so that he can hear you with it, the anguish. And I want to give you kind of the bottom line that David gives in this psalm right away because David gives his bottom line right away. So I have no choice but to follow his order. So Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3, this is David, the psalm writer, David the king, David the guy who killed Goliath. This is the David who wrote these words, and he gives you kind of what he's hoping for you when you feel like you are in anguish. Here's what he said. He said, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. To which you're thinking, great, Good for you, David, but you know what? I'm just not feeling it today. I don't think I can praise like you can praise. But the point here was not how great David was, that he could always praise God. The point was, at all times and always, there's the potential to praise God. It's not that you have to wait for certain circumstances to line up and then say, thank you, God. But David says, even for those who are in this helpless moment, even there, There's the option and the promise that you can extol, you can praise. And David continues with this. He says, I will glory in the Lord. He's like, I've made my decision. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted, the anav, let them hear and let them rejoice. Not because their circumstances have made them not afflicted anymore, but because there's a reason even in their circumstance for them to rejoice. I know this is Kind of, we're just kind of getting out the ideas, then we'll conc- make it concrete in just a minute. And then David follows up with this last thought. He said, glorify the Lord with me. He kind of sits down next to this person who's going through the affliction, and he says, I, I will glorify the Lord in all circumstances. Will you glorify the Lord with me? Let's exalt the Lord together. I know what it's like to be afflicted, David would say, and I see that you are in affliction too. Would you just pause right here? And extol God. Would you exalt him? Would you magnify him? Glorify him? Praise him? You pick the word. Let's give God credit and thanks and praise. So without any other explanation, all I want to tell you from Psalm 34 and from what David has experienced is number one on your sheet. Those in anguish can rejoice. It is possible in the midst of anguish, in the midst of helplessness, uncertainty, to be joyful and to rejoice. And I know that for me, that's where kind of the brick wall starts to go up and I start to tell David who's sitting next to me, I'm like, David, you don't know the anguish that I'm going through. You're a king. You killed a giant. People loved you. You had wealth. You had, 
You had relationships, maybe too many of them with women, but you had anything you wanted. Who are you to tell me about anguish? And here's the cool thing about the Psalms. Sometimes in the Psalms, there's these little subtitles above them. And I'll tell you what, those weren't added by us. Those were actually written by the psalmist as he recorded them. So some of these subtitles, they say this was a song of David or this was a whatever. And some subtitles say this was uh, supposed to be sung to a certain tune. And so it would tell you what tune to sing it to. We don't have the tunes anymore, but we still have their instructions. And then some psalms, like Psalm 34, actually open the curtains a bit so that we can see the circumstances under which the psalm was written. There is a story behind the psalm. And for Psalm 34, it was this. This is a psalm of David. We've already talked about that. When he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. Did you hear about that one in Sunday school? The really short section, kind of an unusual section of history, but one that had a profound impact on how David viewed Anath, how he viewed being in anguish, to the point where he can now sit next to someone and say, I know you're going through anguish. I've been there too, to a pretty big degree. And so as we kind of understand what David went through, I think it'll help you contextualize the anguish you've been through in the past or you've, you're in right now or you will be in the future. The, the story is kind of a long one to tell, but I'm going to summarize it for you like only Pastor Matt can summarize a long story. I'm the expert of getting just down to the nitty-gritty de- details of things. So there's a few things that you need to be aware of. When we, when we get into this section of where uh, David had to run from Abimelech, first of all, the, the whole thing with Abimelech, Abimelech can also be a title name. So it's not necessarily a name like, like Henry or Matt. It can be a title like King or Pharaoh is like a title, but it can also be used as a name. And, and so when you see Abimelech here, it's not necessarily a name. It could just be, mean ruler or king. But as we get into this story, it takes us to 1 Samuel chapter 21, which is a really interesting section to look at if you have time this week. And there's some things going on behind the scenes. By by 1 Samuel 21, what you need to know is that David had already been anointed as the future king of Israel. The prophet came to him and said, you'll be the king. There's only one problem. Israel already had a king. They already had King Saul. But David grew up. He defeated Goliath. David became this great military commander. And King Saul, who was still the king, had a lot of jealousy towards David. And so Saul tried to kill him more than once. And Saul came really, really close to the point where David simply had to flee. David was a fugitive on the run when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And here we find him alone, hungry, and defenseless. So David sought out the priest. He went to the priest, and the priest said, I have no food to give you, but I have this special bread that's only for the priest. David said, I'll take it. David said, I'm looking for a weapon, and the priest said, this is not a place to store weapons, but we have been holding this sword of Goliath, which, you know, God kind of did through you, and now the sword is kind of God's, I wouldn't recommend taking it, and David said, there's no sword like it, I'll take it. David sought out this priest, and he started to do things his own way, and you can see he's starting to get himself into some trouble. So he grabbed Goliath's sword, but he still needed a place to go. 
So here's what David did. I mean, he's on the run, all alone with Goliath's sword. Just picture him. I don't know how big a nine-foot man's sword is, but it's probably pretty big. He went to the city called Gath, which was a Philistine city. Now, do, do you guys kind of see the problem here? Goliath was a Philistine or Philistine, however you pronounce it. He was one of them. And so now here's David carrying around the sword of their defeated champion several years later, but still. And the people notice him. David got noticed, and you're thinking, duh, but David was so steep in this trying to scramble and scramble to keep control of the situation that he dug himself into a metaphorical hole. And now he's looking at all these people in Gath, looking at him, saying, wait a minute, isn't this the king of Israel? Isn't this the guy who's killed tens of thousands of our people? And so they start to surround in on him, and that's where we get... This piece from 1 Samuel chapter 21. David was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath, as any of you would be. He's being surrounded by these people, and he knows what they're going to do to him. He's alone, isolated with the proof in his hands of what he's done. And some of you can relate to that feeling. That moment where you've made a string of decisions in your life that have led you to a certain place, And now your heart just drops out from underneath you because you know that you've dug yourself into a hole that you cannot get out of. You're a nov. You're you're hopeless. You're helpless. And in this moment, David is forced to do something that's his last chance and his only chance. And you know he wrote a psalm after this, so you know he survived. Spoiler. But the next part, I think, really illustrates what happens to us too when we find ourselves in anguish, but then we just make it worse and worse and worse. What David did was he pretended to be insane in their presence. He acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Okay, so I'm not, we're not sure what the marks were, if he was pretending to be a dog or if it was something different, but he was acting like an insane madman, letting saliva run down his beard to the point where when the king saw him, when they had him brought to the king, the king said, I have enough madmen in my kingdom. Why are you bringing me another one? Get him out of here. What I want to illustrate for you is that David was forced into humility. He was forced into it. He had no other option but to acknowledge his weakness and his short-sightedness that had gotten him into that situation. And some of you know that feeling of being forced into humility, where the only thing you can do is to own up. No more lies can get you out. No more deceptions. No more shortcuts. You just have to sit there and enter into the humility of your own making. A place where it's publicly known, personally known, that you are helpless. And in that moment, something changed in David's mind and in his heart, where he started thinking about things differently. From that moment, he says, I know what it feels like to live in affliction where you feel hopeless, where you're poor, where you're powerless, you're weak. I know what it's like, but I know there's a better way, and I know the way out. Psalm 34, David sitting next to that person, he says, I sought the Lord. I, David, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. He did not miraculously 
uh, release me from the cause of my fears, but he released me from the curse of my fears. He took away the fear itself. And there were still consequences that he had to work through. The Lord answered me. I sought the Lord and he answered me. So as David, just picture this. David's sitting next to this person who's just steeped, stooped in, in anguish. And David says, I don't know what your anguish, anguish feels like, but I know what mine felt like. And I want you to know I sought the Lord and he delivered me. He delivered me. Then he goes on to say, those who look to him, those people who look to God are radiant. I love how he phrases this. Their faces are never covered with shame. Remember what David's face was covered with when he had to pretend he was insane? His beard was covered with saliva, but at the same, just imagine how humiliating that was, right? To walk around in public, saliva running down your, your, your face and pretending you're insane, making marks on things. That was a public humiliation. He was forced into humility, but he says, I am not defined by that. My face is radiant because the Lord has delivered me. My face was covered in saliva, but my face is not covered with shame. That has been lifted from me. God has delivered me from that. As much as I buried myself into the hole, here's the amazing truth. This poor man who put himself into that position, this poor man called out and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. And so just picture this, David, King David, sitting next to someone. Yes, it's hard, but here's what I found. I sought the Lord and he answered, I have no more shame. I'm a child of God. And all of this so far is just anecdotal, where great, David, great, it worked out for you, but how does that work for me? And what David responds with is this one just beautiful truth. And this might be one of those key passages that you need to write down on your mirror or in your wallet, if you have a wallet, wherever it is, keep this passage in front of you, because this is a promise from God to you, that the angel of the Lord, which in the Old Testament refers to God himself, He encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. There's this promise that God is with you. In just a moment, David's going to qualify what it means to fear the Lord. But would you just for a moment imagine what it's like? Number two on your sheets, being helpless really isn't all that bad if you have someone nearby who can help you. And David is saying, guess who's been encamped around you this whole time. Now, I don't think I've ever shared this from the stage, but in high school, I did play football all four years. First service left. Thank you for not. (laughs) I was not that good. I was not that big. I was about 150 pounds for most of my high school career. I think I bulked up to 170 my senior year. Like, woo, growth spurt. But I was not that good. But here's the cool thing. I was in a small school, so I was able to be on the team. And the class ahead of me They were a bunch of beasts. I mean, their sophomore year, they probably could have gone into a liquor store and not be carted. (laughs) They they looked, I mean, it was just incredible. And they were huge. They were 200, 250 pounds. Just everyone in that class ahead of me was so big and so huge. And so my first three years of high school football, I didn't really play a whole lot except for JV. But there was this one game. I was second string because our school is so small. I was second string running back. And there's this one game where our team was on the three-yard line with the ball about to score when our star running back 
got hurt and had to come out. And it's not good when you see Ernie getting hurt and he has to come out. But Ernie got hurt, and so the second string running back had to go in there. Not ready at all. I was just watching the game, loving it from the sidelines. But then I go up onto that field, and there's all these you know, big towering guys around me, and they're all looking at me. Hi, guys. Or it's more like, hey, guys. You know. <laughs> and then I'm looking at the other team, and they're just kind of staring me down, you know, waiting for the offense to come to the line, and they're all sweaty. They've been in this game, and here I am just you know, kind of standing there. And then we get the, this call in from the coach, like he's giving us the play from the three-yard line, and I'm thinking, okay, Z out, you know, get those wide receivers way out there, far away from me, and do their thing. Guess what the call was? Running back up the two side, up the two, is it called the gap? Yeah, the two gap. So in other words, Matt's going to take the ball and run straight ahead. And the, when the guys got the call in the huddle, they look over at the sideline. <laughs> Did he get that right? Are you sure it wasn't the fullback or maybe the tight end or someone else? No, it was me. And then I looked over at the coach like, what? <laughs> and then I looked at my linemen. And then I saw or I noticed Nick and Tony, the linemen who I'd be running between. Those guys were towers. They were Goliaths. All they had to do was give me three feet and we would get a touchdown. Three yards and then we get a touchdown. And so we line up, I'm sitting there. The other team, I'm just like, what are we doing? I'm sitting there lined up and I'm ready to go and we hike the ball, I take the ball. I get three yards and five inches. Touchdown. It was incredible. All they had to do was fall forward and just give me a gap, just give me a small gap and all I had to do was run through it. Now, it gets better than that. So Ernie was also our kicker. So now that we had the touchdown, there was no one to kick the field goal, so we had to go for two, and guess what call came in? <laughs> Running back, up the two gap. Everyone looks at me again, well, let's do it again. So I take the ball, bam, two-point conversion, eight points, and then I come back out because Ernie's better. It was, it was, it was amazing. And, the, and all the while, I'm thinking, man, why did my coach make that call? Why did he do that? And I'm sure he was thinking, that's the last thing the enemy will expect. The last thing I expected, the last thing, we all, last thing we all expected, but it worked. It's not because I was so great and powerful and strong. I was pretty helpless out there, but I had some people around me <clears throat> that could help. What if God's been looking at your situation in life and saying, you know what, you've kind of been in anguish for a while. You're helpless, you're powerless. But I think the last thing the enemy is going to expect is if we use that for my kingdom. What if he's been waiting for that moment for you? And what if all it takes is for you to say, God, this isn't about me. I want you to step in here. You take the control. You be my help. Because I need you. And you still might have some reservations like, man, what does that look like though? And I don't know if I can be brave enough to just let go of the control in an area of my life and just follow God's direction and follow God's guidance and follow the direction of the people around me who are speaking, you know, for God. And David, he could probably you know, see us and what we're wrestling with. I think a lot of times we just try to overanalyze, like, why it is we get so worked up in certain areas of life and why it's so hard for us to lose control. And so I think this verse this next thing that David says just gets to the heart of what we need to hear. He says, 
Just taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge, who finds help in him. This isn't something I can explain to you. Just like you cannot explain a color to a person who is colorblind, and just like you cannot explain what sweet tastes like to someone who has no taste, this is something that you just need to taste and see for yourself. The peace you find when you let go of the control over this thing that you've been getting anxious about, when you just let that go, the peace that you find goes beyond my ability to express it in words. Just taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. Then he goes on to explain. The rest of the psalm is basically summarized in these two verses. He says, fear the Lord. That's what it looks like to... to, um, to, to open up, to let, let go of control to him. Fear the Lord, you his people, his holy people. And by the way, Jesus made you holy. You, th- those, uh, for those who fear him, lack nothing. Then he gives this illustration. He says, well, how can I compare this? Like, if you depend on God and if you make him the priority, how can I illustrate it? And so he turns to the lion. He says, well, the lions, you know how big and strong and ferocious predators they are? They still may grow weak and hungry, As strong as they are, they can still fall. As strong as your offensive lineman is, they can still fail. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Jesus put it this way, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these other things that you worry about, they will be given to you as well. So here's what I want to share with you, number three on your sheet. You will find peace when you start fighting to give God control. Because here's the thing, it's not a fight against the world around you, and it's not a fight against the people around you. This fight is against you. Are you ready and willing to let go of this control? You have to fight yourself daily to say, God, I have my ideas, but I'm not going to seek out anyone but you. May my song be the same as David's. I have sought the Lord, and he delivered me. I didn't seek out the priest. I didn't seek out this person or that person. My primary audience was you. I sought out the Lord, and that will be a daily fight. Because all too often, if we fail at this, here's what we find. We find ourselves having to pretend like we're insane, making marks on city gate doors, and letting saliva run down our beards to our own shame, to our own humiliation. We are forced into humility. Some of you know what that feels like. You're forced into a situation where you have to own up to what you've done. Here's an interesting thing I want to end with. When God decided to make things right with you, God became flesh in Jesus Christ, and he dwelled among us. The Lord made his tent, his dwelling, his encampment around you and me. And when he did so, not only did he enter our environment, he entered our anguish. He was not forced into humility. He chose humility. He chose that path to where the Apostle Paul, as as he was describing Jesus to to people in the first century, he, he encapsulated what Jesus did with these words. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. When Jesus made his dwelling among us, he chose humility so that he could redeem you from that bitterness of anguish, the anav, 
where we are completely helpless. He who was the powerful creator of the universe made himself helpless and powerless on that cross so that we would not have to fear what comes next. Some of us in life situations will be forced into humility because of our mistakes. I want you to know there's always forgiveness and redemption from that, and God can deliver you from the shame. He can make your face radiant. But awaiting all of us inevitably is that moment where we are forced to humble ourselves to death. It's a consequence of living in this world. But the good news that you and I have is that Jesus even went there. He chose to humble himself to that point so that he could take away its power over you. So here's where I want to close. I think a lot of us overthink the whole thing with, I just feel like I need to give control to God, but I don't know why I want to keep control, and I need to analyze myself and take some personality tests. That's great. That's fine. Learn about yourself. But the point of Psalm 34 is, is simply this. Would you just give it a taste test? Instead of trying to keep that control for yourself, would you just taste and see? Stop overthinking it. Just taste and see what it's like when you let the peace of God overcome what has been keeping you in anguish. God may not deliver you from the cause of your anguish, but he can deliver you from its fear. And that's the promise I want you to take with you today. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I know that as I give my best intentions here to, to preach comfort and to preach direction uh, from the front, that there's so many different unique life circumstances out there that we can get ourselves feeling in anguish over. And no two people are alike in what they feel. So while my words may have missed the mark, even though I can't counsel every person in the room, Father, I believe you can. In your word, you promise that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and you promise that you will deliver us from fear, and you alone are our help. I pray that that would be a principle, a truth, a, a value that uh, we would be able to apply to any area of life as we leave these room, this wall, these rooms today. I ask you to bless all the people who gathered here. Give them the wisdom to discern from this psalm what it looks like to live in your peace and in your comfort. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.